Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. It's May 15, 2018. I'm Charlie Sykes, joined by Christine Rosen and Andrew Egger of the Weekly Standard. Thanks for joining me. I appreciate it very much. Hello, hello. Hi. All right, we have a lot to talk about. Uh, let's just start off by the breaking news. Uh, novelist Tom Wolfe, one of the one of the real pioneers of the new journalism, dies at the age of 87. I have to say, th- this this one hurts because uh, not only was he just an extraordinary literary figure, but I think for a lot of writers, and I put myself in that category, he was really an inspiration. So this is this is this feels like a loss, Christine. It is. And, you know, I was thinking about how his before the phrase political correctness was deployed constantly, he sort of understood the logic of that. Right. I mean, he'd go into Mm -hmm. these fancy parties and and gently and not so gently mock the pretensions of of liberal elites who would who, you know, were swanning around with Black Panthers. And he just had this gimlet eyed view of of a a world that a lot of people thought they understood and whose political views were rarely challenged. And so I think particularly given our current uh, social and cultural context, you can go back and reread particularly his his journalistic pieces, and they are still as fresh and incisive and as sharp as ever. You know that uh, that piece was it called the Mau Mauing the Flat Catchers, where he's he's sort of making fun of the of the Leonard Bernstein crowd mm-hmm. who were ooing and aahing about the Black Panthers. You, really, you that was decades ahead in in a lot of ways of this puncturing the bubble of pretentiousness of political correctness. And you know, I, I, you know, he was one of those guys though that that played with the English language. And it's it would be interesting. I, I assume we'll read this over the next couple of days. How many writers were inspired by him, but also how he changed the business of journalism? Because, but you know, there 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 is a line, and at least maybe it's an imaginary line: journalism before Tom Wolfe and journalism after Tom <laughs> Wolfe. He made it a lot more fun. He made it. Um, he he certainly raised the bar. Um. And, and and the novels, I think, were also extraordinary. In fact, uh, yesterday when I did my piece about uh, Donald Trump and and John McCain, I used the title, not knowing that th- this was going to be in the news, that Tom Wolfe, uh, a man in full. Mm. Um, again, one of the uh, one of his, uh, his his later books. I'm just going to miss them because it's just realizing that you're not going to get the next Tom Wolfe novel. I hadn't realized he was that old, but again, I guess that's that's an occupational hazard, isn't it? Yes. All right, let's talk about uh, some of the other things. You know, I, let's, I want to talk about a, a cultural issue in American politics. We, we, we've talked about the whole Kelly Sadler uh, story where, you know, she uh, had, had quipped that, well, at least he's dying about John McCain. We've, we've done that. Again, one of the things that I think it highlights is this unwillingness to ever apologize. The, the reports were, that seem to be credible – is that Meghan McCain asked her to apologize publicly. Kelly Sadler apparently told Meghan McCain that she was going to apologize and yet has never done so, which, of course, raises the question in the Trump White House. Is that the one thing you can never do? Well, I think that one thing that we're we're, we're seeing here and, you know, in more broader political spectrum uh, is that you know, where once the the best way to do damage control uh, after a situation like this was probably just to come right out, fess up, uh, say you were in the wrong, and then try to move on from that, you know, in, in, in sort of a good faith way. Um, I think 
a lot of politicians are starting and, and people surrounding politicians are starting to catch on that it's um, in our sort of hyper uh, political climate. It's oftentimes easier to just sort of pretend that um, nothing is amiss, sort of try to, to bury the story or try to counter the story with something um, you know, more uh, more in tune with your own political alignment and your own base's uh, concerns. Does it, does it work? Well, uh, this this McCain quip story. What are we on day five, day six? When it could have been a one-day story, right? And certainly the you know the the people in media are are, are trying to continue to get a good answer. But what we we've, we've seen out of the the White House uh, specifically is we have seen at least attempts to do this kind of counter programming to make it an issue, um, not of just you know basic sort of gross disrespect for um, this this you know, lifelong uh, American public figure and, and hero. It, it, it's now in, in the eyes of Donald Trump and the people surrounding him an issue of leaking. It's a question of, you know, the right. the, the, the White House, um, you know, it, it's too leaky. It was it was it was bad that this was leaked. It wasn't good for it wasn't good for the McCain's. That this was leaked. And that's the real problem here is that this that this private comment was brought out into the press. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it's anybody's guess as to whether or not that convinces people. But at the very least, it sort of reframes that narrative, so that's what uh, at least yeah. the president's intended our uh, audience ends up thinking about and talking about. All right, I want to go back to the issue of apology, though, because there appears to be this this new sense, this new culture that 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 any sort of an apology or acknowledgement of error is a sign of weakness. Uh, you know, at, at, I guess I'm old enough to remember. When in fact, uh, you, if you screwed up, if you did something that was wrong, it was described as manning up to take responsibility and to apologize. So how have we flipped the script, Christine, on making uh, apology sort of a sign of of being what, a, a conservative, uh, somehow <laughs> weakness? Yeah, I think um, I actually think that some of it stems from an earlier, slightly earlier trend when it comes to apologies, particularly public apologies, and that's the the sort of strange faux apology that a public figure makes, where they say something uh, to the effect of "I'm sorry if you were offended," mm-hmm. or "I'm sorry if you didn't like what I did, said, acted, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. So I feel like we've had this kind of Potemkin-like, uh, you know, apology regime in public life for so long that it's not a surprise that, it, well, it is a bit of a surprise that that um, Trump isn't playing along. At least it's a surprise to a lot of people because there's kind of a script everyone's supposed to follow, right? You're supposed to grovel a little. You're supposed to tell people you're sorry if they're offended, but basically not cede any any sort of wrongdoing on your part. And he's not playing along. He's not backing down. Um, I think a lot of his supporters like that about him. I don't think it does much to improve public life. And Andrew's totally right that that trying to shift the story to make it about leaking is is just ridiculous. But I, I don't think it's just a Trump problem here. I think this is something that in public life we've been far too credulous of some of the sorts of apologies that we've heard over the years. And if I could just add... Yeah, if, if I could just add one thing to that, like what, what does uh, a public apology, you know, speak to? If you're if you're apologizing to your own political opponents, it's it's a question of appealing to some sort of higher standard or, or common standard that that everybody is supposed to be subject to, and and that those are the exact kind of standards that we've seen hollowed out in our in our recent political discourse to the extent, uh, um, to the degree where now you can make a credible argument that in our political system, if, if if you're apologizing to your opponents, you're just giving them you know a weapon to use against you by admitting that you were wrong and they were right here and a lot of people aren't willing to do that. I think this is an interesting point because, of course, the argument is, 
Why apologize? What does it get you? Your your opponent, you're not going to win over your opponent and you simply demoralized your supporters. And then, as you point out, give them a weapon. Right. I mean, that's that that's actually the argument that that you that you'll hear from from people. What what does it actually get you? And I suppose maybe this uh, th- this is another one of these artifacts of of our of our tribalized politics, because I have noticed uh, that um, the the if you spend too much time on social media, which I do not necessarily advise, there's actually a culture of refusal to accept the apology, that there is nothing that someone can say that if, in fact, you have transgressed and then you do you know throw yourself on the mercy of the other side, the other side is not inclined to respond with mercy. And so if you realize and I think this would be true in your personal life as well. If an apology is not accepted, then inevitably somebody says, well, why bother to do it, right? That, that, that simply, you know, because we have so demonized the other side that there's just simply no forgiveness whatsoever. There is no absolution being offered, so why ask for it? Exactly. Right? Um, the other thing, and, and somebody asked me this earlier, this, this – uh, and I don't know whether it's new or whether it's simply accelerating, going back to the whole uh, Kelly Sadler thing. And if you spend any time on social media, which, again, I, I don't advise, including Googling the phrase John McCain dead or looking for that on, on, on Twitter, this openness and this willingness to root for the death of your political opponents now, again, it would be naive to assume that this is something new in, in human nature. But there seems to be less of a stigma about it, and that that may be going too far. But this inability to say, okay, I disagree with John McCain on campaign finance reform. I disagreed with John McCain on um, on you know the repeal of Obamacare. But I'm willing to acknowledge that he's an American hero, and I wish him well, and I certainly do not wish for his death. Why is that so hard for people in this partisan environment? Well, I think that this is something. It's exactly what you just said. It's it's something that really festers and grows on on social media, and it hasn't just been for John McCain. It hasn't just been an issue of you know uh, McCain style conservatives versus you know Trump style conservatives and and bad blood between those. But I think uh, in in a lot of the uh, segments of the political population right now that are for better or worse. Uh, in, in sort of trolling, uh, inclined to troll. Um, this is just you know one of the more common uh, ways of sort of being transgressive online um, that that we've we've seen an unfortunate uptick in. and 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 you know uh, even around figures who you'd you'd think would be you know completely impervious uh, to this, like the you know former first lady Bush when she died uh, recently. Oh, there were yeah. there were pe- people um, you know on in, in left wing Twitter who you know just like just kind of ha ha uh, you know she she's in hell now. LOL. That's 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 sort of you know it's it's just designed to get a rise out of out of people and and you know there it doesn't serve any obvious constructive purpose but it's just sort of one of the uh, depersonalizing and uh, you know depersonalized trends that that you you do see as an emergent property of these okay, these so, impersonal so Chris, relationships. Christine, though, I always I struggle with this. What's new and what's old? Does social media just give an outlet to something that was always there? Are we just simply now seeing something that was there? Or does it actually encourage it? Does does the existence of social media encourage this sort of behavior? 
I think Andrew's right. I think it accelerates and encourages it. I mean, it also used to be the case that when anyone was wishing death upon a prominent American, it was usually usually an Ayatollah who was wishing death on an American <laughs> president. It wasn't, you know, social media uh, trolls wishing death on, you know, or, or gloating in the death of a, of a former first lady. So I do think that it has brought out some of those baser human tendencies um, because it rewards them, right? I mean, there used to be, we used to have taboos about things like this because there were consequences if you if you right. broke the taboo. Well, now you're actually rewarded with the one commodity that, that didn't used to have such a broad reach, which was attention. So, uh, you know, a, an average American might have said or thought exactly that same thing about a former first lady or, or a senator, um, but they didn't get any attention for saying it. And they probably got some censure for if they did, at least among their local community. But in a global village um, where attention is the commodity, I think that 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 has changed things significantly. Now, speaking of politicians who are unwilling or unable to apologize, uh, this extraordinary story about the governor of the state of Missouri, Eric Greitens. Andrew, you have been writing about this, and there was uh, some significant development yesterday. And again, for people who are, are not aware, I mean, talk about a juicy story. He's, he's basically um, accused of coercing um, his partner into giving him oral sex, then blackmailed her with a nude photo to keep her from going public. And yet yesterday... The charges um, were dismissed against him. So just tell me what's going what's going on in Missouri. Yeah, so this is, this is really sort of the most incredible political story that, that's happening right now, just in terms of the outrageousness of the of the claims, at least, right? I mean, even even in you know even in our, our climate today. If I could just give so a little bit more background, yeah. um, basically sure. what what happened is that it came out right at the beginning of this year that that Eric Greitens had had an extramarital affair. Uh, before he assumed office in 2017, um, he sort of apologized for that. People kind of moved on, but then these claims started to come out um, that that he had behaved very badly toward this lady. Um, you know, had had sort of, like you say, sort of been coercive toward her. Um, and then the, the 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 big Kahuna of the of the claims was that he had taken a, a a nude picture of her without her consent, and then used it, like you say, to to ensure her silence. Um, and for that that accusation, he was uh, he he has been uh, brought. Criminal charges filed against him, a Class E felony uh, for invasion of privacy, um, and then their secondary to that, Greitens has been embroiled in a bunch of other scandals that have to do with uh, campaign finance uh, and, and and other related sort of political uh, malfeasance, which which is is all going to be dealt with sort of further down the line. There's impeachment proceedings going on against him in Missouri right now. The the uh, Republican controlled legislature have have strongly signaled they're likely to impeach this Republican president, which is sort of remarkable. But, but Greitens has. Uh, like we've just been talking about, he has not apologized for anything beyond the initial affair, which he did apologize for back in January. Um, he's he's essentially refused even to address a lot of these claims. Uh, he hasn't. He refused to talk to the uh, legislative committee that was uh, conducting an internal investigation. He's basically said everything's a partisan witch hunt. He's connected explicitly his own uh, travails to the quote unquote witch hunts around Donald Trump in Washington. Um, and and yes, yeah, so just yesterday, uh, the the latest development is that that just as this trial for invasion of privacy was starting to get underway, they were in the middle of jury selection. It was you know, very much the first steps of this trial. Suddenly it comes out uh, that the prosecutor's office has dropped the the charges and, and they're wanting to refile. But it's, it's this very complicated thing and we don't need to get in, into it all right now. But apparently the, the prosecutor has um, not has sort of made a botch of the the actual case, which was going to be really hard to prove anyway. Um, and so they, the judge was going to allow the defendants to call the prosecutor as a witness in the trial, um, which was going to just 
make things extremely complicated. So, um, yeah, I, I have a piece up on the Weekly Standard uh, about it from just yesterday, so I don't need to get into it a lot more than that. But I, I think that the, bo- the bottom line here is that um, two things. First of all, that, that Greitens has been embracing exactly this same strategy. Um, he's, he's said all along that... Um, that he's he's not going to you know respond to these uh, political accusations and that the truth will come out at his trial um, and that now you know he's he's sort of got more ammunition to say well look uh, nothing came of the trial and that's just more evidence that that this was a witch hunt all along um, but that then what we're going to need to look to whether or not they're able the prosecutors are able to refile these charges as they'd like to do um, is that really th- this is not going to be the the, the, the the central thing that happens there at Greitens the thing we're going to need to look forward to and, uh, and and keep keep tabs on the thing that's ultimately going to decide his at least political fate which is I guess, I guess what matters to us is these impeachment proceedings that are going forward in special se- special session next month. So a couple of quick questions here. N- number one, why is this different than, say, what we're seeing in, in Washington? I mean, obviously, it is, it's more extraordinary, but the Republicans in Missouri have been very, very willing to cut this guy loose to to to, to break with him. Why is he not able to call on the kind of party loyalty that we've seen in other parts, in 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 other, in other stories? Well, that even that's kind of a complicated question because it, it, there's sort of a difference between party loyalty as applies to you know the other elected Republican officials who have largely called for him to step down or yes. or thrown their support behind uh, impeachment proceedings, but the the you know broader party apparatus, the Republican Party as it officially exists in Missouri, has largely kept their weight behind Greitens, and they've they've sort of fed his uh, his political talking points out to voters. They've they. they They've encouraged the notion that this is a, a political witch hunt. They've, uh, you know, run interference so, for him in terms so of the tying. The base is sticking with this guy despite all. Of this. Yeah, I mean, he's clearly taken a big hit. But at least as, as of as of late last month, he was still supported by a majority of Republican voters in the state, which has obviously created a really big problem for the for the party. You know, um, and 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 you know. Which is even potentially going to have national consequences in terms of you know like, like we've talked about before the the Senate election this well, this was, November. That was my next question right. is, is 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 what is how this plays in the Senate election because Claire McCaskill seems every every election cycle to be you know dead woman walking and then something amazing happens to bail her out is is this hurting um, the child because the Republicans as we've talked about before have a very very strong candidate potentially against her right and I, I what I can tell you is that. Um, Republican strategists who are not in the can for 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 uh, Greitens have been hopping mad about this this whole thing because they they see Greitens going after Hawley you know very explicitly you know calling into question his motivations his yeah yeah right because because you're right exactly because as I should say Hawley has been um, you know part of the uh, forces because he's you know, investigating these things that have been bringing these these charges up against Greitens Greitens has impugned his his uh you know, personal uh, ability, his, his, his work, he, he, he's essentially made him out to be a totally incompetent attorney general. And not only that, um, but, but I, I, I don't know whether, how true this is, but what, what some of these strategists have been telling me is that Greitens has actually been, um, in terms of his, his gubernatorial power over setting ballot initiatives and things like that, he has deliberately moved some, uh, key progressive, ballot initiatives from the August ballot to the November ballot, which they see as essentially just a big middle finger to Josh Hawley to actually hurt his own party's Senate uh, candidates' chances of, of being elected. So it's really mind-boggling stuff. It is mind-boggling stuff. Okay, I want to talk about uh, one of the, maybe it's one of the bottom stories of the day, but I'm still fascinated about it, uh, the, the report that that um, pretty much every night Donald Trump uh, and Sean Hannity have a, a bedtime phone call. 
uh, which they uh, they get they get each other riled up. And I want to talk about uh, what, what that tells us about what's going on. But today's Daily Standard podcast is brought to you by the Dollar Shave Club. Now, Dollar Shave Club delivers everything you need to look, feel and smell your best, has everything you need to get ready in the bathroom. More than just razors. Dollar Shave Club delivers everything, everything. I mean, shampoo, conditioner, body wash, toothpaste, hair gel, even a wipe to leave your, I have to read this, tush feeling tingly clean. I don't think my tush has ever felt tingly clean. <laughs> I'm a big fan of their amber and lavender calming body cleanser. It's really, it is impressive. Look, and what I like about it best is I hate shopping for stuff. The fact that they deliver it as opposed to walking around the aisles of the store looking for whatever you want. So for just five bucks, you can get their daily essential starter set. It comes with body clean, uh, uh, cleanser. Uh, these, and they're called One Wipe Charlie's. Um, their world-famous shave butter, and their best razor, which is really amazing. It's the six-blade executive, and they keep uh, you can keep those blades coming for more for just a few bucks uh, a month. And add in shampoo, toothpaste, anything else you might want. So check it all out at dollarshaveclub.com slash weeklystandard. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash weeklystandard. All right, Christine, th- this is almost beyond parody, but the President of the United States apparently – is listening, not only listening to Sean Hannity, but apparently talks with him all the time, including, at least by one report, uh, almost nightly 10 p.m. bedtime calls. I know. I love this. This is like the story of the grand bromance in 1600 Pennsylvania. Um, It's it's funny for two reasons, funny and concerning, (laughs) I should say. It's funny in the sense that, I mean, there was a big and... uh, kind of um, fascinating story in New York Magazine talking about the bromance and about how they, you know, they they mention as an aside, you know, well, the first lady reportedly sleeps in another bedroom. And of course, who wouldn't if your husband was up all night talking to Sean Hannity? I mean, just about any woman in her right mind would make that choice. But it, there are probably it, other incentives as well. Yeah, we, exactly. <laughs> um, but I think that, that what what's kind of funny about it in an almost human and endearing way is that they both sound like kind of lonely men if you read the story. They sound like people who need a lot of validation and who are kind of competitive and brash and proud of themselves for being self-made, but also a bit insecure about that success. And so in that sense, you can see it actually being a genuine connection, a bond between them, which I don't think anyone would mock if it was, say, you know, Barack Obama and George Clooney, right? We wouldn't be hearing these sort of, you know, seeing these sorts of stories in New York Magazine unless they were fawning. But what's concerning... Can you imagine what we would do about that if we found (laughs) out that every single night Barack Obama called up George Clooney? I mean, but but it would I be run with that. It, the narrative would not be as I think as mocking as it is in this case. The the concerning part, though, and it's evidently of concern not just to the readers of New York Magazine, but to people who work in the White House, is that you know the the kind of influence that someone like Sean Hannity might um, have over the president's you know kind of wild. Twitter habits and and concern about ratings and and shocking statements um, is not a good one, and so that that is that's something that in terms of policymaking and leadership, uh, it's worth reading the piece to to get a sense of um, this friendship having an impact. And you know, I think it is it's certainly the American people's business to know who is whispering in the ear of of our leaders. Um, We've always had a sort of fascination with this, but there's a democratic purpose to it, which is that we are not a monarchy. We do not have courtiers, right? This is a strength of democracy, but we do have behind the scenes players and it's incumbent upon them to 
justify the influence they're having and for the American people to feel reassured that it isn't a nefarious one. You know, I have not been that obsessed, believe it or not, with 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 Sean Hannity in the in the universe of all of the conservative media folks that have uh, you know gotten on the on the Trump train. The reason why I haven't focused on Sean Hannity, and I'll be really honest with you, is because I I just think the guy is as dumb as a box of rocks. <laughs> and I mean, when I listen to him, I feel like I'm getting dumber, you know, by the time. So as a result of that. He doesn't really upset me that much because he's being Sean Hannity as opposed to some of the folks who I think know better, who are smarter, who are sharper, who I think have more of a responsibility. But Sean Hannity kind of represents the lowest common denominator, I think, of of what's happened with the conservative media. And what's most concerning about this is not that Donald Trump is talking to somebody every night or that he's talking to somebody in the media, is that he's talking to somebody who is, first of all, you know, dumb, but also prone to – the kind of bizarre and reckless conspiracy theorizing that I think is really dangerous. I mean, you know, Sean, Sean Hannity is it's one thing to be pro-Trump. I mean, you know, I'm all in favor of, you know, people, if they have an opinion, be able to express them, First Amendment. But but Sean Hannity has pushed that line again and again. You know, his uh, his his trafficking in the Seth Rich conspiracy theory, this this implication that this murdered young DNC staffer um, might have been the source of the hacked emails. This was this was ugly stuff. This was dishonest stuff. And the fact that that Sean Hannity doesn't have the judgment or the character to separate what is true or what is false. So much like Donald Trump, Sean Hannity doesn't seem to have or care about a truth filter. And that's what's kind of frightening is that you're talking with somebody who is, in fact, this irresponsible. Um, and of course, then the the way it it turns Donald Trump into an echo chamber for for Hannity and and Hannity into an echo chamber for Trump, there's there's something there's something tr- disturbing about that. And and this is something that I've I've brought up on on the podcast before, Charlie. But um, I I think one of the things that this New York Magazine piece speaks to is um, the the naivete of the impulse among some conservatives um, when they were throwing their support behind Donald Trump in the first place, that this guy was sort of just like a blank slate on which you'd be able to project, um, you know, heritage foundation style, uh, just conservative dogmas just by putting, you know, the right kind of people around him in in the think tank orbit and in the White House itself. Um, whereas in reality, the, the, it's just the way Donald Trump's wired that when he thinks that there are people around him uh, who are trying to like subtly influence him in a specific direction. Um, he, he resists that. He pushes back against that. He goes uh, over their heads and outside their orbit for, for secondary opinions. And one of the things this piece talks about is how he sort of sees Sean Hannity as sort of the most trusted of these outside advisors mm-hmm. uh, that other people in the White House can, can only really react against and sort of try to uh, minimize uh, the, the impact of, which is, which is why Donald Trump goes to them in the first place, because he thinks he, he and Sean Hannity see eye to eye on a lot of things. He thinks that Sean Hannity will tell him things that uh, the people around him in the White House might try to keep from him or might try to influence him away from. And, and, and so he, he actually sees this sort of, you know, that this misanthropic uh, pot stirring, uh, you know, talk radio guy as, as, as sort of the one guy who will tell him to it, tell it to him the way it is, which is you know, just sort of spooky. Yeah. And, and again, this has been, we've commented on this before, but here, here the president of the United States has access 
to the best and brightest intelligence, information, advice in the world, in theory. And yet he's talking to Sean Hannity. Now, you mentioned this 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 fantasy that, well, OK, Donald Trump uh, is going to be the blank slate. This is an enduring fantasy because I, I still think that that among some of the quote unquote establishment Republicans, there is this fantasy that 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 Donald Trump will be sitting there in his in his nightgown and he'll be you know talking to Mike Pence. He'll be talking to Paul Ryan. He'll be reading reports from the Heritage Foundation. And of course, none of that is ever going to happen. But of course, hope springs eternal, doesn't it? Yeah. And we should probably point out that in terms of policy, that there has been something to that, right? Like he has, Donald Trump and the people around him have put into play a lot of the same policies that your your, your typical conservative people uh, would would have wanted him to on, you know, on Iran, on North Korea, on on the the, the tax reform stuff, on deregulation, and all those sorts of ways that this thing has panned out to to one degree or another. It's just more in the the cultural sense, in in the sense of the president as shaping the national conversation where he... Uh, you know, he, he can get very, very far afield from what the, the White House press team might want him to be focusing on on any given day. Do not congratulate. Do not congratulate. Do not congratulate, Andrew. Do not congratulate. Let's end on a more positive note. Uh, Christine, I'm, I'm sure you've seen these, these reports that Bill O'Reilly might be returning uh, to Newsmax TV. Proof that in America there's always a second act. We haven't seen, we haven't really seen anybody come back from the Me Too, uh, Me Too scandals. But Bill O'Reilly seems to be the guy that might make it. Dear God. Um, no, I did not know this news. Um, this is interesting. Um, I feel like he – I mean perhaps he can hire Charlie Rose and they can have some sort of, you know, uh, talk about a bromance. Um, this uh, – Firing line. This – exactly. <laughs> um, I'm kind of surprised to hear that, although it doesn't surprise me that it's Newsmax that hired him. Um, well, what's going to be interesting, of course, is that if Newsmax does that, they will be in direct competition, of course, with Fox News. Right. Which means that Fox News – needs to look over their shoulder to see whether they will be outflanked on the right. I'm not not sure this is going to end well. No, and, and to, to kind of have these these um, tainted Me Too men, you know, returning like Night of the Living Dead onto various other outlets is not, that that's also not a good thing. Although I do think the question of can and should these people be rehabilitated and how does that what does that look like is one that we haven't answered yet and that is really going to become more pressing as more and more of these uh, media figures in particular try to find a way to make a living. So that this question of is your banishment forever or is it temporary and what you have to do to work your way back in, those are questions we need to answer as a culture. And, and, and will the culture, going back to our first question about apologies, will our culture ever ex- accept an apology for that kind of behavior? You know, there's, there's always a, a redemption. And, of course, the one – seeing Bill O'Reilly – uh, because I've got to scratch this. The one story that I still completely do not understand is the $32 million payment that he allegedly paid out. Because I, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out how did you get to $32 million for a, you know, a sexual harassment allegation? I mean, I'll, you know, the, how did the negotiations go? Okay, I will pay you $3.2 million. That's not enough. <laughs> what about, and then you play this game. You know, well, how about $6 million? Okay, would you accept a check for $7 million? And apparently the negotiation got to the point where, no, it had to be $32 million. I, I can't even fathom how that negotiation went or what he must have done to be willing to write out that check. Something pretty bad. <laughs> I, I think so. <laughs> and we more than once. <laughs> and we are going to end on that note. Thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate it very much. And thank you for listening to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back again, we'll be back again tomorrow. And we will do this all over again. <laughs>